Section 35 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16, Peace Negotiations, Part 2. Parliament, at the beginning of the year 1711, had voted large supplies. The government raised more than half the money by lotteries, the only way in which they could make a loan acceptable to the stock jobbers. Soon after Marlborough's arrival at The Hague, the affairs of the Allies received a great blow by the death of Emperor Joseph. He left no heir but his brother, the Archduke Charles, and now the whole energies of the House of Austria were bent to secure the election of Charles to the Empire. Marlborough had hoped to be joined at once by Prince Eugène and to open a brilliant campaign but Eugène was detained at Vienna. He could not reach the camp of the Allies till nearly the end of May, and a few days after he got there he received orders from Vienna to withdraw to the Rhine with the greater part of his army. Marlborough was left alone with diminished forces at a time when he knew that the least false step would bring down upon him a storm of reproaches, and when he suspected that secret negotiations for peace were going on, of which he who had so long directed the war was told nothing. Louis the Fourteenth once more sent Villars against him. Villars employed all his skill in causing a series of fortified lines to be made during the winter, which were to defend Arras and Bouchain, and prevent Marlborough from penetrating any further into France. He was so satisfied with their success that he wrote in his usual boastful way to Louis the Fourteenth saying that he had brought Marlborough to a ne plus ultra. Marlborough, after the withdrawal of Eugène and his troops, felt himself too weak to risk a battle, but determined to penetrate Villars' lines and invest Bouchain. He managed to deceive Villars as to his real object. The French were amused and distracted by being allowed to gain some trifling advantages. Villars was strongly entrenched along the scarp, from the marching of the Allied troops he gathered, that Marlborough's object was to attack, and called in his distant garrisons to aid in the battle, thus leaving several points on his fortified lines but feebly defended. Marlborough drew up facing him on the 2nd August, and everyone expected a battle. On the morning of the 4th, the Duke was even to be seen riding along the lines, pointing out to the different generals the directions in which the attack was to be made, the French were confident of victory. The Allies, gloomy and dispirited, thought it nothing but madness to dream of attacking an enemy so strongly entrenched. But Marlborough had already dispatched troops to prepare for crossing the enemy's lines at a point which had been left undefended. A little before nine, orders were given to furl the tents. The attention of the enemy was distracted by the movements of some bodies of light cavalry, and the march of the army began. The Duke himself led the way at the head of fifty squadrons, and through a cloudless night lit by a full moon, the army marched rapidly on. At daybreak, they were met with the news that Cadogan, with the advanced troops, was in possession of the enemy's lines. The march was accelerated, the stragglers and the weary were left behind to be brought up by a body of horse, and the army pressed on. They crossed the enemy's lines in the morning at the spot which Cadogan had captured on the Sanzé, 
and after a forced march of thirty-six miles, which took sixteen hours, over a country intersected with rivers, the weary troops encamped in the afternoon on the other side of the enemy's lines. Villar had discovered Marlborough's intention when it was too late to prevent it. The Allies had penetrated the Ne plus Ultra, and it was now impossible to prevent the siege of Bouchain, which Marlborough at once began. This bloodless victory shows almost more strikingly than the great battles he won the military genius of the Duke. His enemies in England tried to make people look upon it as a mere trifle, but both at the time and afterwards it aroused the admiration and wonder of military critics as a feat of astonishing skill. During the siege of Bouchain, Marlborough gave a proof of his true courtesy by the generous way in which he treated the possessions of Fenelon, the famous Archbishop of Cambrai. His corn magazines were in danger of being plundered by the foraging troops of the Allies, and in consequence, Marlborough sent a detachment to guard them and to convey the corn in safety to Cambrai. After the fall of Bouchain, Marlborough wished to proceed to the siege of Quenois. During the whole of this campaign, he wrote with openness to Harley, now Earl of Oxford, telling him of all his plans and asking his approval. Oxford played a double game with much skill. His negotiations with Louis the Fourteenth were already far advanced, but he still professed an active interest in Marlborough's schemes and a zealous cooperation in his endeavors. The minister who had attained to power through the intrigues of a bedchamber woman had no liking for a straight and open path, and made his first proposals for peace through a French priest the Abbe Gaultier, who had come to England as Tallard's confessor. Gaultier was secretly sent over to Torcy in January 1711 and asked him whether he wished for peace. It was like asking a dying man whether he wished for life and seemed almost too good to be true. When assured, however, that he might treat with Gaultier, Louis Fourteenth made in April secret proposals for peace but these were very different from the proposals which he had made before. Conscious that the English ministers now needed peace as much as he did, he resumed once more his haughty tone. He offered only such conditions as he thought would be satisfactory to England and Holland, and made no mention of depriving Philip of the crown of Spain. The English minister, who knew that neither the Queen nor the country would put up with a peace concluded separately from the Dutch, sent over these terms to Lord Raby, who had succeeded the Whig Lord Townsend as English minister at The Hague. Raby was bidden to show the French terms to Hensius, and St. John added, The Duke of Marlborough has no communication from hence of this affair. I suppose he will have none from The Hague. The Dutch answered by expressing their desire for peace, but said they wanted more particulars. They really wished the proposals to be made to them, and did not like this direct communication between England and France. But Louis the Fourteenth, who saw that his best chance of peace lay in the wishes of the English ministers, preferred to carry on his communications with England. A new messenger was now sent to Paris, Matthew Pryor, the poet, a personal friend of Oxford and St. John, 
and formerly secretary of the embassy at Paris. His mission was kept strictly secret, and no one knew where he was gone. After considering his proposals, Louis the Fourteenth sent him back to London with Ménager, a French merchant who had taken part in the conferences at Gertrudenberg. Ménager remained secretly in London for some time conferring with ministers, and even with the Queen, but not daring to go out till dark for fear any notice should be taken of him. At last, on the 25th of September, 1711, the preliminaries of peace were signed. Louis XIV promised to recognize the Queen's title and the Protestant succession, and to take steps to prevent the crowns of France and Spain from being united on the same head. But there was no question of the cession of the Spanish monarchy. He simply promised a secure barrier to Holland and the Empire, and hoped to satisfy the English by decided commercial advantages. Lord Raby, who had been made Earl of Stratford in order that he might be more subservient to the will of the ministers, was given a copy of the preliminaries to carry over to Holland, but in this copy some of the conditions offered to England, which the ministers feared might excite the jealousy of Holland, were omitted. Though the whole matter had been kept most carefully secret, rumors had got abroad and reached Marlborough. He asked Oxford for fuller information, and Oxford, with pretended sincerity, told him something but gave him to understand that the negotiations had not yet proceeded any length. He affected to enter into his plans for pressing on the war, and to wonder at the backwardness of the Dutch. But the Dutch, who knew how probable peace was becoming, did not care to waste money and men, and threw all manner of obstacles in Marlborough's way, so that he was obliged to give up the siege of Quenois and abandon his plan of establishing the winter quarters of his troops in France. Everywhere the war during this year had been unproductive of results. An attempt had been made to carry it to more distant quarters, and an expedition had been sent against Quebec under the command of one of Mrs. Masham's brothers, but the ships were scattered by a storm and returned home without doing anything. Affairs in Spain looked worse than ever. Charles had gone to Austria and had been duly elected emperor. This brought a new difficulty before the Allies. They were fighting to prevent the preponderance of the House of Bourbon in Europe. But if Spain were now gained for Charles, he would rule over a kingdom vaster in extent than that of Charles V, and all that would be gained by the war would be the preponderance of the House of Austria instead of the House of Bourbon. It cannot be wondered at, therefore, that neither England nor Holland were very anxious to aid the ambitious schemes of Austria, more especially as Austria suffered more and more of the burden of the war to fall upon them, whilst she herself did nothing. End of section 35